Well, thanks to pastors Keith and Keith for carrying us forward in Nehemiah um, during my trip. And I enjoyed listening to those sermons and being on the receiving end of Nehemiah and not just on the distributing, distributing end. Um, we may have thought that with Pastor Keith Withrow's sermon last week that the book could kind of conclude, right? The wall was built. Um, we've seen that process beginning in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6, and it seems like mission accomplished. But really, mission's just getting started. Um, because the second half of the book of Nehemiah is the most important half. You say, Pastor Mark, come on, that was a big project. Let's not undermine their work that small. That, that was a huge amount of sacrifice, and it was. But that wall being built was meant to serve in Nehemiah's mind a far greater purpose. There was a physical component that was important, but the spiritual component of rebuilding the people of Jerusalem was a far more passionate concern of Nehemiah than even the important concern of building the wall. And it's that concern that occupies Nehemiah's interest for the second half of the book, chapters 7 through 12. The first six chapters deal with the physical renewal of Jerusalem through the rebuilding of the wall, and the second half of Nehemiah deals with the spiritual renewal of the people through Nehemiah's work in that way. It patterns itself similarly after the book of Ezra. In the first six or so chapters of the book of Ezra, which is kind of Nehemiah and Ezra typically go together in many Old Testament, um, uh, Old Testament uh, ver versions of the Old Testament, the books are typically lumped together because they not only share a historical overlap, but they also share similar emphases. That is, Ezra was a spiritual leader, but he focused first on the spiritual, as, the physical aspect of the people by rebuilding the temple. And then he focused on spiritually renewing the people. Well, Nehemiah does the same thing. Even though he's not a spiritual leader, he's more of a political and physical leader who's in charge of the big construction project of the wall. Nevertheless, his concern is spiritual too. So that's what we're going to see play out in the second half of this book. Nehemiah's spiritual concern for the people and how he goes about renewing them spiritually. J.I. Packer has a very helpful book on Nehemiah called A Passion for Faithfulness. I think it's a great title for the book of Nehemiah, A Passion for Faithful Faithfulness. And in his sixth chapter of that book called Times of Refreshing, he writes the following. Chapters 7 through 12 of Nehemiah's book have one sustained theme, namely the restoring of the Jewish people in the holy city. Israel alive again. The theme is dealt with in four sections. Chapter 7, establishing the community. Chapter 8, learning the law again. Chapter 9 and 10, renewing the covenant. And chapters 11 and 12, peopling the city. That is, filling it with new residents. But notice that. Establishing the community starts first. And that's what chapter 7 is all about. It's Nehemiah establishing Jerusalem. Establishing who the people of God are going to be going forward. You might think, okay, well, that's an interesting thought. But, I mean, if you read chapter 7, it reads like the Jerusalem phone book. And now that the wall has been built... This chapter describes the repopulation of Jerusalem with a genealogy of the returnees from exile. 
Now, where do we begin to consider a chapter like this? Well, first of all, we stop and see what is Nehemiah doing? Nehemiah is reestablishing the community of Israel. And he's doing it in three specific ways. And this pattern, as we're going to see, has huge application for us as a local church. Because remember, the people of Jerusalem is the Old Testament church of Nehemiah's day. Nehemiah is a spiritual leader in that church, and he's trying to set it up to be a healthy church community. And the way in which he sets it up is the very way the Apostle Paul instructs churches to be set up in the New Testament. So what we're going to learn here in Nehemiah chapter 7 is three healthy church essentials. Three essentials of any healthy church community. They must be essential to us and any of Christ's churches that would seek to be a healthy church community. So we're going to look at those three healthy church essentials this morning. Here's the first one. The priority of worship. The priority of worship. Notice the very first thing, post-wall construction, that Nehemiah does is appoint the gatekeepers, the Levites, and the singers. Verse 1. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. These would have been those who were responsible to lead the people in the worship of God. This shows in Nehemiah's mind, and functionally high up on his priority list, is corporate worship of the community. Nehemiah knew that for this all to turn out well, and not just be a rah-rah building project, the reinstatement of the centrality of corporate worship among the people had to be installed in the hearts of the people. This is why we are told that gatekeepers are assigned. The gatekeepers would have served not just as physical protectors of the city, but as moral watchdogs. Look at chapter 13, verse 22, where we get another description of gatekeepers. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So it was the moral purity of the people that the gatekeepers were also responsible for, not just the physical protection of the new property. These were the people who endeavored to guard the people from destructive influences on their souls. Also, we see singers appointed. This reminded Israel that there is more to life than family and work and money. We are created to sing and be led in singing by men and women. The greatest priority is to ensure this is at the heart of God's people's life together. Nehemiah knew it, and which is why he placed a priority on it. And then we see the Levites. The Levites were the teachers. They were the priests. They were those who interpreted God's word for the people. Nehemiah made sure that the people not only had singers to lead them in worship, but also teachers because God's, work needed to, God's word needed to be regularly brought to bear on the lives of the people, which is what we're going to see next week in chapter 8. Now, Raymond Brown, a commentator on the book of Nehemiah, has this helpful word to say about this whole concept of the priority of worship. He says, In his day, Nehemiah was alert 
to the gradual infiltration of secular ideas and vigorously opposed measures which endangered Israel's spiritual values. He did everything possible to ensure the people worship God regularly and acceptably and that spiritual ideals were kept uppermost in their community. When people went to the temple, their minds were lifted above those mundane issues which had dominated their minds throughout another week. Isn't that what's happening now? That's what's been happening this morning. Our minds are dominated by so many things during the week and for an hour and a half we finally get to lift our minds off of them and put them on something far more important. Brown continues and says, As they worshiped together, they would reflect on the meaning of life, the confidence of faith, the assurance of forgiveness, the primacy of love, the guarantee of strength, the horizons of hope, treasures not available for purchase in Jerusalem's marketplace. But in the temple, their reality was confirmed. This is why the worship of God was Israel's highest ideal. Without it, they were reduced to the values of the godless. Nehemiah appointed temple singers so that the praise of their generous and unfailing God might have the highest possible priority within Israel's community life. Now this priority had already been communicated in the building of the wall itself back in chapter 3. Remember that last big list of names? We've got one more still to come. I'm giving that one to Pastor Thad. I said, I'm not doing three sermons on three lists of names. You get to get one. And he was happy to do it. But back in chapter 3, during our first list of names, Nehemiah records that the sheep gate was where the wall rebuilding both began and ended. Chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 32. The whole chapter is bookended by this commentary about the sheep gate. The sheep gate. It's all revolving around the sheep gate. What is the significance of that? Well, Eliashib, the high priest, is the first name that's mentioned in chapter 3 alongside the other priests who were building the sheep gate, presumably because the sheep gate was near the temple and possibly was named that way because sheep were brought in through it for sacrifice in the temple. It was the quickest route to the temple. There's a gate right there. Sheep can be brought in for sacrifice. Now, what does that say? that even back in chapter 3, Nehemiah is thinking about the priority of worship. He's structuring his whole building plan around the sheep gate. It begins there, it ends there. Because again, worship is the highest priority for Nehemiah. It's also the only gate that's mentioned in that chapter to be consecrated as holy, as a special place in which sacrifices were going to enter through. Now, we know that God's presence was lost in Eden, but it returned in some capacity in the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, also in the land in the book of Numbers, and the the temple eventually getting built in the book of 1 Kings. But God's presence with Israel was always limited. According to 1 Kings 8.27, God says, or the question comes, will God indeed dwell on the earth? In the coming of Christ, God came to dwell with and die for us as his people so that those who receive Christ might become the gathered children of God. Children of God have been scattered all throughout the world. Jesus pictures in John 11, the shepherd bringing in the gathered children of God, gathering them again after being scattered through the fall. And now, since the risen Christ is present among us as his gathered people, we have the privilege of joining with him as his brothers and sisters, praising his Father and ours. Our present earthbound worship gatherings anticipate the time 
when we will dwell with God visibly and personally. What a privilege, what a promise. Who would want to miss out on that? Every Sunday, we are participating in, tra- in a trailer, in a coming attractions preview of what's to come. Now, the trailer's never as good as the full movie, but it's meant to sell us on something of what the movie's going to be like, right? That's our worship gatherings on earth. We're participating in coming attractions. And gathering isn't just a privilege, but it's also a command that creates a solemn responsibility on us. Throughout the New Testament, we see the weekly gathering of the church on the Lord's Day as both a pattern and a command. Brothers and sisters, is that your priority? Does corporate worship take the priority over everything else that vies for priority? Do you build your week around it? Does it take first place in your heart and thinking? If not, why not? What needs to be done in order to make that a priority in your life? And I guarantee this, Satan and his minions, our flesh and the world, make a relentless and unceasing assault on the priority of worship in your life. They will do everything they can to get you to not read your Bible, not pray, not come to corporate worship, not gather with the saints. Find other things to do. In fact, I think you're familiar with the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. There's one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis, and it's a, it's a, a series of letters written by a major devil to a minor devil in training. And his his agenda is to equip that minor devil with how to seduce, trick, undermine the work of the gospel, the Holy Spirit, and God in the life of God's people. Well, many people have come along and written new screw tape letters, patterned after the old ones. And one such one I want to share with you this morning is on the way in which uh, the way in which Uncle Screwtape, the senior devil, is trying to equip Wormwood, the junior devil, to get Christians to not prioritize worship. And I want to read that with you this morning. I believe it'll be on the screen. Here's what it says. My dear Wormwood, it's been too long since I last wrote. I now feel obliged to speak with you quite candidly about a matter of of grave importance. There is one particular danger, and you must see to it that it's avoided at all costs, and that danger is church attendance. Though your subject seems safe from the clutches of our enemy, above all, Above, you will recall that he has spent the majority of his Sundays thus far in church. The habit may not be easy to break. If he tries church for a few weeks, make sure it's a pointless endeavor. Do not forget our little rhyme. If to church one must go, lead him to an empty show. And when all we can do is meddle, make sure on one church he does not settle. Church attendance is bad enough, nephew, but consistent attendance at the same church spells almost certain doom for our cause. If your human persists in his church interest, you simply must devise some way to shuffle him around from congregation to congregation. See to it he never knows the people he's worshiping with. Keep reminding him of how rotten the music is over there and how long the sermon is over there and how bland the coffee is at that other church. Trust me, it won't take much to get him floundering on church. Almost any excuse will do. The culture in which these humans live is nothing if not critical. They are trained in it daily. Use this to your advantage, my dear boy. If your subject is determined to go to church, make sure he searches for the perfect church. Within a few weeks, he will be fast asleep on Sunday morning, much to our Father's delight. 
the father meaning Satan. Speaking of sleep, do whatever you can do. Keep your subject out late on Saturday evenings. Just keep him up. You know perfectly well how our, how our father below insists on busyness at all costs and how terribly he depends on sleep deprivation for his work. It's well-known fact among the higher ranks of deviledom that silly humans suspect our interference in the big things, death, accidents, spinning heads, and the like. They never expect that our work consists mainly in distraction. So do not neglect our demonic bread and butter. Make Friday a fun day and Saturday a waste. He will have no choice but to sleep in on Sunday and use the rest of the day to get ready for Monday. Keep up your discipline, my dear Wormwood, or he will keep up his. You will excuse me for my stern tone, but I cannot overstate the importance of this matter of church. Heaven is at stake, my infernal child. Spirituality is one thing. God talk is generally harmless. Occasional prayers are tolerable for a season, but for hell's sake, Wormwood, church is absolutely out of the question. Say hello to your father for me. Best wishes in your malfeasance, malevolence, and malediction. Unscrupulously yours, Uncle Screwtape. Priority of worship, brothers and sisters. It was a priority for Nehemiah and the people of Israel. It must be a priority for us as well. Point number two, the placement of leadership. The placement of leadership. Following the priority of worship being reestablished, the next thing that Nehemiah does is place qualified leadership in place. Now, I stress qualified because in our day, character is seen as a non-essential to leadership. And it's just not true in the Bible. You won't find it there. Not just for the church, but for the state as well. Because Nehemiah is appointing people both in the state and in the church with high character. In verse 2, we read the following. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Why did Nehemiah chose who he chose? Character. Character, character, character. That was the reason. Not his plans, not his policies, not his agenda, his character. Who he was mattered more than what he did. First, what he, what he did is important. Policies are important, very important. But who a person is is more important. Nehemiah places him in charge of governorship in Jerusalem because he was more faithful and God-fearing than many, which implies that many aren't. You'll find many who desire leadership who are not faithful and who are not God-fearing. Just because someone desires leadership does not mean they are qualified for it. Rather, those who are oftentimes qualified for leadership know themselves, feel themselves to be the least qualified. They don't want to do it. They prefer not to do it. They'll do it as a means of glorifying God and serving the people, but they're not searching for that. They're not feigning for that. They're not desiring that. Now, there's certainly aspiration involved, but there's also a humility involved. And notice that Nehemiah's focus is entirely on the character of the people he is appointing. And this is what we find in other parts of the Bible as well. This isn't new. Remember when Jethro comes to Moses in Exodus 18, Moses is completely stressed out, overworked, overwhelmed, way too many cases on his docket, docket, wakes up every morning with a full schedule, burnout by noon. Jethro says, you're dumb. That's his good father-in-law for you. You're dumb. Here's what you should do instead. How about you 
appoint qualified, character-filled people to help you in this administration. So he reminds him in Exodus 18.21, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So it should be no surprise to us, brothers and sisters, when we come to Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, we read the same things when Paul instructs the church how to pick qualified leaders. Titus 1, 5 to 8, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul says, Titus, look for those kind of guys. Look for those kind of guys. Paul says the same thing to Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders." so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. See, brothers and sisters, leadership is not first and foremost about personality. It's not about intelligence or diligence or vision or decisiveness or courage or extroversion or humor or tact or any other natural attribute that doesn't require the Holy Spirit to produce. God builds his church through his word, as we will see next week preached by those who are godly and qualified. You can build a crowd on personality, you just can't build a church. There's a big difference between a crowd and a church. And that's why we as God's people have historically recognized the importance of God's character, of godly character for leadership, not just for the church, but for the state as well. There is a character connection between rulers and subjects. When the Bible describes a king by saying he sinned and made Israel to sin, it does not mean he twisted their arm. It means he set them an example that they willingly followed because that's how leadership works. It means his influence shaped the people. This is why it says in Proverbs 14.34, Righteousness exalts the nation. It's not primarily talked about the character of the people in the nation. It's talking about the character of the people leading the nation. Proverbs sixteen twelve. It's an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. In other words, if the king does evil, the throne is affected. Proverbs twenty five five. Take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. If the king engages with the wicked in their wickedness, his throne is affected. Rather than participate in it, the king is to oppose it in his own life. Proverbs 20, verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Proverbs paints a king as someone in whom you would find purity of heart and gracious speech. 
Proverbs 22, 11. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Because the king's like that. Gracious speech is also mentioned again in Proverbs 16, 13. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. Also, it's clear that the king's favor should be procured by those who live wisely, not act deceitfully and shamefully. Proverbs 14, 35. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, and his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. In other words, the king gives his approval to those who act righteously. Again and again and again in the book of Proverbs, the essence of godly character in rulers is emphasized for the blessing of the people under their leadership. Proverbs 29.4, by justice a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Proverbs 29.14, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. The behavior of those in leadership are either nation corrupting or nation blessing. Same with the church. The behavior of those in church leadership is either church corrupting or church blessing. They move, leadership is designed by God to move out from the centers of influence to either infect or to bless others. It can't be any other way. It's the way God made the world. So when we nominate leaders, brothers and sisters, for elders and deacons, character has to be the primary concern. And when you vote, character has to be a primary concern in addition to the important place of policies. Does those things biblically shape your conscience and how you approach leadership that you're called to steward? Because the church is called to steward leadership. You are the ones who appoint your leaders. You are the ones given the keys of the kingdom to hire and fire your leaders. And so you have to be governed by these things as well. Notice that when Nehemiah appoints these leaders, he turns them loose. He doesn't micromanage them. Why? You don't have to micromanage God-fearing people. You don't have to micromanage trustworthy people. You have to micromanage deceitful people. You've got to keep your thumb on people that you can't trust. But people you do trust, you just delegate the responsibility and you release them to it. This is what he does in verses 3 and 4. Notice. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. See, he, gives the, he, gives, he delegates the authority of guard appointment to these men. He doesn't want to be involved in it. He's appointed good men to do that. And so Nehemiah trusts the leaders that he's appointed. Theodore Roosevelt said, The best executive is one who has sense enough to pick good men to do what he wants done and self-restraint enough to keep from meddling with them while they do it. That's what we're called to be and do. So that's the placement of leadership. You see how important, not just the priority of worship was, but then secondly, the placement of leadership, because the placement of leadership affects the first point. Who, they, who is leading them will affect whether or not God is valued will affect whether or not worship is prioritized, will affect whether or not there's a healthy church community underneath them. So he knew, in addition to prioritizing worship, we have to have godly leadership in place. Thirdly and finally, third healthy church essential, priority of worship, placement of leadership, third, practice of membership. This is verse 5 through 73. 
and I'm going to cover it in the next five minutes. Because I'm not going to read the passage. It's just, like Derek said, helpfully, it's just a list of names. But these verses contain a record of those who returned from exile. And in the verses, we find a virtually identical list as the one given in Ezra chapter 2. In Ezra 2, there's a historical description. But in Nehemiah 7, this is an instrument for identifying families from which can be drawn new inhabitants for Jerusalem. We see in verses 6 and 7, the original leaders. Verses 8 through 38, laymen are discussed. 39 through 42, priests are discussed. 43, Levites. 44, singers. 45, gatekeepers. 46 to 56, temple servants. 57 through 60, descendants of the servants of Solomon. 61 through 65, those of questionable ancestry. And the totals of people and gifts are given in verses 66 through 73. The grand total is about 50,000 people. So God put it in Nehemiah's heart to maintain a careful membership role. Why? Apparently, Nehemiah wanted to make sure that those repopulating Jerusalem were of pure Jewish stock, were of Jewish ancestry, and the record served to this end. This means that the genealogy in Nehemiah 7, the list of authenticated Jews is the first step taken to validate the true people of God so that Jerusalem could be purified. Now, what does all this mean? We learn something here very important about the nature of church membership. First, membership roles aren't unbiblical. Second, membership roles should consist of true Jews. That's what we learn. Membership roles aren't unbiblical. Membership roles should consist of true Jews. Let's take those one at a time. First, membership roles aren't unbiblical. Church membership and having people's names on membership roles is an idea with deep, deep, deep biblical roots. The Garden of Eden had an inside and an outside. Noah's Ark had an inside and an outside. The people of God in the wilderness had to be ceremonially clean to remain inside the camp unless they be put outside the camp. The nation of Israel was to have an inside and an outside as represented by the food laws, the festivals, the political boundaries, the places of worship, even the strong provisions against intermarriage. To be clear, nothing wrong with ethnicity. The problem with intermarriage in the Old Testament was the blending of religion. Not the blending of ethnicity, but in those days, ethnicity tended to carry with it the religion with it. In the New Testament, the ethnic and cultural boundary markers of the Old Testament have been exploded, but a clear, bright line remains between those who are God's people and those who are not, as indicated by their profession of faith and the visible fruit of their lives, as well as by the practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are what give substance and shape to the church's membership. There is an inside and an outside to the church, to every local church, by necessity. The inside are those who have been baptized and welcomed to the Lord's table, and the outside are those who aren't and haven't been. 
In 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, Paul challenges the Corinthian church to judge those who were inside the church and leave judging outsiders to God. How did the Corinthians know who was in and who was out? They had a membership. They knew whom Paul was talking about because some people had formally, publicly identified themselves with the church in Corinth while the rest of the city didn't. So those who had were inside the church and they were the church's members and those who hadn't were not. So brothers and sisters, I don't want you to ever believe that somehow there's no church membership in the Bible. There may not be the specific form that our church takes. That's fine. Because the Bible gives us liberty on whether you have a membership class or whether you don't. But when a church starts practicing baptism in the Lord's Supper, it's practicing membership whether it wants to or not. And it's doing it either unhealthily or very healthily. And this is, the, this, this is what Jesus has given to the church to determine who the members of that local congregation will be. Who's baptized? Because the implication is those who are baptized are brought into the membership. Unlike many Baptists in our days who sever those two things to the great harm of the church and the neglect of bringing up new disciples in Christ. It's like adopting a kid and kicking them out of the house. We're not going to take responsibility for you. You need to take responsibility for yourself. They're a baby. You bring them in and you nurture them up as a family. That's why baptism and church membership should be connected together, except in pioneering missionary situations like Ethiopian eunuch. Right? He had no church to be baptized into. Gospel hadn't gone to Ethiopia yet. It can't be used to talk about, well, there's the Ethiopian eunuch. He was baptized. What church did he join? The church in Ethiopia. First member. Second, membership roles should consist of true Jews. Now, those were physical descendants of Abraham in Nehemiah's day, but who are the true Jews in the New Testament sense? Christians. It's one of the reasons we don't baptize babies. Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ, are true Jews according to the New Testament, and only those. We don't get a right, according to Jesus, to pull people into the church that aren't Jewish. You understand what I mean by that? Spiritually Jewish. (laughs) Not practicers of Judaism. I mean believers in Jesus Christ who are identified in the New Testament as true Jews. Let me give you a couple verses on that. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Romans 9, 7 and 8. Not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Philippians 3.3, 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul once said, you don't know who true Jews are? They worship Jesus Christ. They put no confidence in anything they do and they trust themselves completely in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Those are the circumcision. Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Galatians 5.6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
1 Corinthians 7, 19, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. We see this also in John 8. I'm not going to read the entire passage for the sake of time, but remember they come to Jesus and they say, we got Abraham as our father. Why are you talking to us like this? We're physical descendants of Abraham. We're born in good Christian families. And he says, but you don't believe in me. So you're not a child of Abraham. You're a child of the devil. And that's why Jesus got crucified, for saying things like that. This is the reason we are doing all we can, by God's grace, to preserve a believer's church. Jeremiah 31 says that everyone in the new covenant will know God. And in this church, we participate in the new covenant. We want all members of the church to know God, and we don't admit them until they do. In as much as we can discern it by their profession. And if their profession is called into question due to their unrepentant sin, we want to obey what Jesus said and put them outside the church. Remove them from membership in the church so that they are under no illusion that they truly know God. So the priority of worship, the placement of leadership, and the practice of membership are essentials to any healthy church community. And may God enable us Far be it, we haven't arrived in this. We need to be all the more vigilant to, as a church community, prioritize worship, make sure the leadership we place in, 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 our, in our church is godly and qualified, and that our membership is full of people who know the Lord and manifest that by repenting of their sin. We say our membership is open to all sinners, all believing sinners, and our membership is completely closed to unrepentant sinners. And that includes professing Christians that are unrepentant. By their unrepentance and their unwillingness to repent of sin, they are not behaving like a believer. And so the practice of membership is critical. May God enable us to do these things. And so to pave and preserve a healthy church community for generations to come. Let's pray. Father, these are sobering words, and yet at the same time, we are so thankful for your word, so thankful for the ways in which your word equips us as a local church to think biblically about what the church community is supposed to be. We're so thankful for Nehemiah's example here, his example of faithfulness, his passion for faithfulness, his passion to preserve the priority of worship, his passion to see godly and qualified leadership put in place, and his passion to see membership practiced well. Lord, would you help all of the churches that are, that are in Christ to grow in these areas? We, we want to grow. We haven't arrived. We are imperfect and stumbling and faltering, and we need your Spirit to preserve us and to help us and to keep us. We have not arrived. We want to grow in these ways. We want to grow in prioritizing worship. We want to grow in placing qualified leaders. We want to grow in practicing membership. We want to do this well for your glory. We want to do it well because the church is the city on a hill that's meant to testify to the unbelieving world who God is. And so help us, dear Lord, to do that. And help all of your churches, both in this country and all around the world, to grow in the ability to reflect who you are to their communities. And we ask all this for your glory, for the hallowing of your name, for the praising 
of your name, for the edification of your people, for the saving of sinners, for the preaching and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Thank you.